Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about a terrific podcast called Time to Eat the Dogs. It's hosted by Michael Robinson, a historian, and it's about exploration. Now, if you're clever, and I know you are because you listen to the New Books Network, you can probably figure out why a podcast about exploration would be called Time to Eat the Dogs. Well, Michael has interviewed many scholars and historians and researchers, and he even interviewed an astronaut about their books about exploration. You can find Time to Eat the Dogs at timetoeatthedogs.com. What else? You can also find it on iTunes. As I say, we really love this podcast at the New Books Network, and we love it so much that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking. If you were a European captain during the Age of Sail, you could cross the Indian Ocean by staying far to the south, sailing in the cold, wild waters of the Southern Ocean. The winds here blew reliably to the east, and you could shorten your voyage by weeks if you survived. It's time to eat the dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today, Dr. Joy McCann discusses the great circumpolar ocean that surrounds Antarctica. McCann is the author of Wild Sea, A History of the Southern Ocean. She's a historian at the Center for Environmental History at Australian National University. Joy McCann, thank you so much for talking with me. It's a pleasure, Michael. So I was wondering if you could just describe so that um, listeners can see it in their own minds, what what does the Southern Ocean look like? Yes, it's um, the Southern Ocean. I mean, some people know it as the Antarctic Ocean because, of course, it flows completely around Antarctica. But it is an enormous ocean. When you look at a map, you look at the whole southern part of uh, the world and it's all ocean. In fact, the Southern Hemisphere generally is often referred to as the Ocean Hemisphere. But the Southern Ocean is... Vast, it's around about a quarter of the world ocean, depending on where you draw the northern boundary, and that is an issue um, that's evolved over the last, developed over the last 20 years or so, where different nations have different boundaries. But overall, the way I have approached it in my book is to look at it historically um, as the ocean that extends southward from the tips of South America, South Africa, Australia, and New Zealand all the way to Antarctica. Um, So that is a very large bit of ocean. Um, It's stormy. It's one of the stormiest oceans on Earth. It's quite distinctive physically as well because it is the only ocean that completely circumnavigates the world and it has very little in the way of land to interrupt its flow. So certainly no land masses to define its its flow and uh, it is incredibly windy. Uh, It has uh, the winds of these latitudes between around 40 and 60 latitudes, 40 and 60 degrees south, uh, known as the roaring 40s, the furious 50s and the screaming 60s, which Mm. is a very evocative way of 
describing the winds, and that's how the early sailors used to describe them. It also has the biggest current in the world, the Antarctic Circumpolar Current, which, as with the wind, it completely flows around the Earth, and it has um, the flow equivalent to 150 times the world's rivers. It is wow. phenomenal. It's a huge water mass, and it squeezes uh, between the narrow gap, relatively narrow opening between the tip of South America and Antarctica in what's known as the Drake Passage, which is notorious for its storms and winds. The Antarctic Circumpolar Current squeezes between that 800-kilometre gap. And around those capes, the, the Cape of uh, Cape Horn, as I mentioned, the Cape of Good Hope at the tip of South Africa, Cape Lewin, the tip of uh, southwestern Australia, and there are a couple of other capes as well in Tasmania and New Zealand. Those five capes were known uh, to early sailors from about the 17th, well, the 18th century. Fly, um, sailing around those capes was a notoriously difficult exercise because you have currents that are flowing around the continental landmasses and meeting the Southern Ocean. Mm. So uh, it is a, a volatile ocean. It's it's renowned, has always been renowned for its storminess. Um, off Cape Horn, um, it's known as the Sailor's Graveyard because of the number of shipwrecks. And uh, apart from that, of course, it also has distinctive undersea t- topography. So uh, what we have through that ocean is uh, a series of islands that literally surround Antarctica, sub-Antarctic islands and Antarctic islands, about 20 or so island groups. And they're tiny, they're like little black dots in the ocean of Bernadette Hintz, the Antarctic historian, calls them like jewels in the crown of Antarctica. And literally that's all there is in that ocean in terms of land. So actually, since you were talking about these sailors and explorers that are going down into the ocean, it made me think as I was reading your book, which is beautifully written, by the way, how there's a paradox about the ocean in these stories of exploration, because in a way, the ocean is everywhere in these in these stories but it's actually never the foreground of them. Mm. And it's interesting to me that you've foregrounded the the ocean so much. And I was wondering why you decided to put the ocean in the middle rather than as the backdrop to a, any of a number of stories you could have written. Mm. That's a good question. I mean, when I came to thinking about the ocean and history, um, the obvious... Um, Sources were all about the surfaces, the exploration, um, the discoveries of land, the development of um, trade, commerce and trade, whaling, sealing, but it all revolved about around sailing from one landmass to another, or discoveries of new landmasses to to uh, colonise. In and colonisation is a big theme in the southern hemisphere. But I decided. As an environmental historian, I really wanted to also look at the natural environment as well. And I thought a lot about how I would do that. And I was inspired by Helen Roswadowski's work on Fathoming the Ocean, her book, which um, focused on the deep ocean and the discovery, if you like, of the deep ocean as an environment in its own right. Mm -hmm. So that really challenged me to think about the Southern Ocean as a three-dimensional environment, not just about above the surface, but also below. And... As I developed my themes, I decided to put the ocean, the physical ocean, front and centre, at the centre of the narrative. And then to really 
explore it as a narrative of the ocean in which humans have imagined it, encountered it, experienced it, exploited it, and sailed across its surface and also explored its depths. So for me, it was uh, a really quite a liberating way of understanding an environment, almost in a way more liberating than exploring in a land-based environment, because you have this incredible interconnectedness of everything in the ocean. And Mm -hmm. and, uh, when I came across work by Elizabeth Borghese Mann, uh, who was a maritime law expert who contributed to the development of the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. She was heavily involved, I think, in the Club of Rome back in the 80s. And I read her work called The Oceanic Circle. And she was talking a lot about interconnectedness in ocean uh, environments. And that, I suppose, in a way, I was drawing from a lot of different kinds of literature, a lot of different sources, to really push these boundaries of thinking about the history of an ocean Mm -hmm. in ways that I hadn't um, really come across in the past. So it really made sense for me to create or to to use the uh, physical elements of the ocean, the storms, the ice. Of course, it's a very icy place, prone to icebergs and sea ice, which covers much of the surface of the ocean during the winter months and melts to about a sixth of its size in the summer. So ice, fog... The fog which comes from the Antarctic convergence and the meeting of warmer and colder waters, which is an incredibly fertile uh, area in terms of marine life and what drew the early whalers to this region. And, of course, the storminess and the winds and the the Mm. currents and the waves of the ocean itself. So they became the chapters in my book. And that really helped to remind me, as I was writing the human history, um, was that I was constantly challenge to interweave the human and the natural in a way that um, was kind of an experiment in a way, but it really seemed to take on a life of its own as I was writing it. Well, um, I've, I've actually spoken to Helen Roswodowski about the way people study oceans. And I remember a conversation with her where she was kind of shaking her head and saying, you know, people talk about the Atlantic world so much. You know, that's a very popular area of scholarship now. But the Atlantic itself isn't generally talked about very much. It's this kind of highway. And I think that your book very much is uh, a story of that that place. It really comes across. I want to um, reference something you just talked about when you said these uh, whalers and merchants who are coming around the Cape of Good Hope and they're entering the Southern Ocean. And what's so interesting about the way you write about this is this is a strange place. It doesn't seem to operate the way other oceans do um, in terms of the temperature, in terms of, as you talked about, the convergence. So could you talk a little bit about what these sailors saw or experienced as they were entering this ocean, how it changed their navigation, things like that? Yes, well, the first um, writing about this strange experience of sailing south into the high southern latitudes that I came across came from James Cook, um, who's well known to Australians because of his um, his voyages on behalf of the British British Admiralty to find the find and claim for England the um, the unknown southern land as was imagined in Western um, philosophy. But Cook was involved in three voyages into the Southern Hemisphere. And the interest that I have in his story 
is his second voyage in which he did actually reach the Antarctic Circle, in fact, sailed across it three times. Not many people sort of know about that dimension to his voyages because it, much of it is focused on um, colon, uh, claiming land and colonising Australia. But I think what is so important about his voyages is that he talks a lot about the physical nature of the Southern Ocean. In fact, he was, I think, uh, one of the first to use the term Southern Ocean. And he noticed as he left the Cape of Good Hope and headed south caught up with the uh, winds of the Roaring Forties as he crossed latitude or around about, about 38 degrees south. Um, he started noticing the intense cold. There was a sudden mm. change in temperature in the water and in the air. And in fact, uh, pretty much most of the stock that they'd brought on board, uh, the Resolution and the Adventure, um, as they left Cape Town, oh, sorry, the Cape of Good Hope, uh, they had um, they died in the cold. It was just such an incredibly sharp drop in temperature. So that got me thinking about how other mariners, navigators, um, trading ships, migrant ships, how they describe the ocean and their first encounters. Most of those encounters that I was reading initially were around the Cape of Good Hope. And, of course, there's the whole story about the development of um, shipping routes in the Southern Ocean, mm-hmm during the 19th century after Cook and the earliest uh, people to venture further south. Uh, he was followed very quickly by sealing, private sealing gangs, privately funded, who were often, uh, we know very little about them apart from the archaeological evidence on some of the sub-Antarctic islands, but these sealers were, were spending months at a time in this region, but we don't have written records. Yeah. But the then the whalers followed and then we started getting more migrant ships uh, sailing into these parts, obviously convict ships to Australia in, in the early days, and then the migrant ships. And during the, 20th, uh, the 19th century, we had the um, many, many descriptions of the experience of sailing into this region, and all of them are both a mixture of fear mm. and awe. Yeah. Always people describe mm-hmm. the magnificence of the swells because when you can imagine sailing in the Roaring Forties, from west to east, um, the swells follow the ship. They push the ships along. This mm-hmm. is about 7,000 kilometres or so between uh, the tip of South Africa and the Australian coastline. So the early navigators were trying to pick up those winds in the early sailing vessels to push them eastward. And, in fact, there's a whole story about the, the development of um, the Great Sailing Circle and what Towson, uh, one of the uh, British watchmaker, developed his own version of it, um, which became standard navigation guides for the early vessels. Yeah, I uh, it, I had a historian, uh, Jane Hooper, on a, f- a couple months ago to mm-hmm. talk about Madagascar and the Madagascar uh, trade. Yeah. And in her book, she talks about how merchant vessels started to figure out the, uh, on the India trade that they could save time if they went east of Madagascar rather than go uh, and hug the African coast. And what I found so interesting about your book is, in a sense, you extend that and say, yeah, well, that was just part of a new kind of thinking about um, navigation, which counterintuitively pushes the boats further south to pick up these screaming winds that Mm. are pulling ships or pushing ships east. And so my question is, 
how did people figure out, I mean, that's dangerous. Those are dangerous waters. Did you get any sense as you were looking at uh, these stories of these sailors, like, is there a kind of point of no return for them? Are they trying, is there a sweet spot that they're they're trying to find? Uh, because I would imagine that uh, your chances of wrecking are uh, go up a lot as you get f- closer to the Antarctic continent. Oh, yes, certainly. Um, anywhere near land, particularly uh, the Capes, were notorious for shipwrecks. So the early the earlier mariners who worked out that they could, in fact, get to the Dutch East Indies and the British East Indies uh, much more quickly, there was there's a whole long story about the development of those routes, uh, the Brouwer route um, for the Dutch East Indies, which uh, instructed and it became compulsory, the Brow route, uh, where they had to drop down into the higher southern latitudes in order to pick up those winds. And also to avoid the storms around the Cape itself, which it's a maelstrom around those capes. And you get Is the, that because of the mixture of waters? That's that? right. You get the, the southward flowing uh, coastal currents meeting the, the ocean currents mm-hmm. further south. And uh, even if you read about uh, modern day yacht people who are sailing on round-the-world yacht races, they all tick off those capes as their um, landmarks. And Mm. they are, you know, a badge of honour to have sailed around those capes. But you read their stories and they are every bit as frightening and um, turbulent and and, uh, life-threatening as it was in the 17th century. Mm. So in those early days, the mariners were looking for those winds and they worked out that um, they could very quickly save many days of sailing instead of following the coast of Africa across to the Dutch East Indies and, of course, also avoid any enemy ships and the risk of um, pirating. They were able to pick up those winds and then shoot across to off the coast of southern Australia. But the problem is without a good understanding or good navigational tools and an understanding of longitude, Um, it was very easy to overshoot the mark. And one of the first shipwrecks off the Western Australian coast was a British ship called The Trial, which actually didn't turn northward quickly enough and uh, was heading to the East Indies and is wrecked and it was was one of the earliest known shipwrecks off Western Australia. But this became a pattern. There was uh, a lot of risk in picking up those winds. So they were not only... This region was not only awe-inspiring and beautiful in its way, mm. it was also very fast, but it was also highly risky. Yeah. The um, other thing that I found so interesting about your book was that you you describe this kind of set of mysteries that people see in the Southern Ocean. For example, penguins, these emperor mm. penguins, which are so large, or the first people who encounter the Fuegians, the people who live on the tip of South America? Why did they so attract people's attention? Hmm. Well, there's a a number of kind of interweaving stories there. I just might mention that one of the uh, interesting things about the high southern latitudes is because it was, um, it took such a long time to actually reach that region and to really start to explore it um, and because of its ice and winds and so on, discouraged a lot of early exploration. So in fact, the Southern Ocean, I think for most of its most of human history has existed more in the imagination than in reality. Mm. And it was really only the 18th, 19th, 20th centuries that we started to really understand the ocean, the nature of this ocean. 
And just you mentioned Tierra del Fuego. That was, of course, uh, Cook sailed around there, as did Charles Darwin uh, about 50 years later in the Beagle. And the impression was in both of those voyages, those major voyages of exploration and discovery in the southern regions, the sense that the southern part of the world was somehow inferior to the north, Mm. that you were moving into a more primitive, more basic, uncivilised world. And so that kind of idea stayed in the literature for quite a long time. And so when we get to the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the race to the South Pole, the era as we know it during the early 20th century of the Antarctic heroic narratives of Scott and Shackleton and people like that. So that was the beginning of a sort of growing awareness of the southern regions as being a fascinating treasure trove, if you like, of uh, not only of the natural environment and the emerging ideas uh, that came with Darwin's theory of evolution, but also almost as a way of seeing those evolutionary processes in practice. So the emperor penguin is an interesting story. The The emperor penguin is, of course, the largest of the penguins. There's about 18 or so species. All penguins live in the southern hemisphere. The emperor penguin is the only penguin that actually breeds on ice in the winter. It's an incredible story of um, survival, and I won't go into the detail of how they do that, but suffice to say that they're nearly a metre tall. They are a magnificent bird, and they work together as a community to survive in those extreme environments. So when uh, the Antarctic explorers started venturing into this region, the first to take a great interest in the emperor penguin and its particular habits was Dr. Edward Wilson, who accompanied Scott on the Discovery mm-hmm. Expedition in 1901 to 1903. Edward Wilson was, of course, a surgeon, but he was also a, the yeah. part role of a naturalist on the voyage. And he was intrigued by the fact that when he saw the fledglings in summer, uh, he worked out that they must have been hatched in midwinter. So when he returned on the Terra Nova expedition, that fateful expedition in which Scott and Wilson died, he was very keen to collect eggs. And the eggs, at the time, the theory was the eggs would be show the evidence in the embryos of the evolutionary process, if you mm-hmm. like. So uh, it was well known at the time that there was an interesting evolutionary link between reptiles and birds. And it was thought at the time that the emperor penguin was one of the most primitive birds and therefore it's the embryos of its eggs would reveal its earlier evolutionary form. This was the theory at the time. So perhaps one of the most memorable narratives to come out of that whole expedition before the death of um, Scott and Wilson on the way, the tragic return. Before that happened, Wilson, together with uh, Cherry Garrard, who was a young zoologist on the trip, and Henry Birdie Bowers, as he was known, the three of them set out on an expedition to recover eggs of living eggs of emperor penguins which meant of course they had to undertake that expedition in midwinter and they did so in complete darkness I still to this day don't know how they managed (laughs) it Um, and it took them five weeks um, to get to uh, Cape Crozier which was where Wilson had previously sighted a penguin an emperor penguin colony they got there they retrieved five eggs two of them broke on the return journey not surprisingly they were they were trekking through minus 60 degrees 
Celsius conditions. And that's a whole story in itself. The other thing that I found so interesting about your book is that as much as it's focused on the Southern Ocean as a place in and of itself, you actually show how intimately connected it is with the rest of the world. My background is on Arctic exploration in the 19th century. And at that time, people who were interested in climate and meteorology were saying if we could just crack the code of what happens in the Arctic, we could understand, we could create a kind of theory of how climate works around the world. And I'm realizing that that story is at least as equally true, if not more true, for the Southern Ocean, that people are looking to these discoveries that you're talking about, and they're they're trying to figure out much bigger questions. So, for example, I was very interested in the fact that after, I think, was it the Challenger Expedition, mm-hmm. which is doing uh, oceanographic research, you have um, John Walter Gregory, mm-hmm. a meteorologist, who says, we need to, you know, if you want to figure out why the droughts are so bad in Australia, mm-hmm. you got to look to the Southern Ocean. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I think that uh, the relationship between the Southern Ocean and the history of climate and indeed the history of meteorology as a science is fascinating. We think of the ocean as you know a marine environment, but of course it's just as much about the atmosphere as well uh, in that region. The Challenger expedition was important in collecting massive amount of data, a massive amount of 50 volumes or so of data, which was published over a very long period of time. And what that was showing was uh, detailed readings of temperature of ocean water in different places. And there was a, a an emerging understanding of the relationship between the currents that flow around the, the southern continents and the climatic conditions on the land masses associated with them. So but by the time Gregory, who was a... a geologist at the University of Melbourne, I believe, for a while, professor of geology, uh, geography, I beg your pardon. He was a geographer. He was interested in the idea that because Australia was in the middle of an eight-year drought, probably one of the worst droughts, well, it was the worst drought in settler memory, at least, Mm. around the turn of the 20th century, it lasted from about the mid-1890s through to about uh, 1904. And so everyone was focused on how do we understand the weather patterns better? How can we have predictions of when we're going to have drought so that provision can be made for it? And it was a a question of critical importance. So when Gregory started talking about the challenges, results, and the fact that we still knew so little about the Southern Ocean and its impact on Australian climate, it really was the beginning of uh, a whole new science in a way. So the Australian and New Zealand Meteorological Service developed at that time after the model that had been um, established in India. And from then on, you ended up with um, the emerging science of oceanography and the ways in which currents influence climate patterns, not just in Australia, but indeed around the world. So the 20th century, I think, has really been a, a massively important um, time of emerging understanding and with the the science is still going on it's still an area of absolute importance mm. now particularly in the context of climate change so the scientists that are working now it's an international sort of laboratory in a sense now the southern ocean has become 
understood to be a, an engine house of current mm-hmm. flow, which because of the amount of ice, um, and I'm not a scientist so I can't explain the physics of it, but as the sea ice freezes, the water around it becomes uh, denser, more salty, and sinks. And so that causes a, uh, I think it's called thermohaline circulation, where the dense water sinks to the bottom and then pushes northward. So in fact, whilst you have the uh, Antarctic circumpolar current going around the uh, world from west to east, you also have a deep current which pushes along the bottom and gradually rises to meet the warmer waters around the Antarctic Convergence and as part of a global circulation system. Wally Broker, I think, an American oceanographer, talked about it as, as I said before, the engine house of the world. So this is an area that I think uh, is so interesting and yet it's it's hard to get your head around because it's a a complex sort of scientific system. system. But um, the work is going on and... um, Climate scientists now look very closely at what's happening around Antarctica with melting ice, with changes in uh, salinity, with acidification of the Southern Ocean, and are realising that uh, many of the questions about climate change and what's what's predicted to happen isn't just about weather, it's also about world climate. Yeah. It strikes me that you've done so many different kinds of writing uh, in your professional career. You've you're an academic. You've done your PhD writing. I know that you also have written policy writings for the Australian government. And this book is neither of those things. It's it's kind of a combination. It is it's an academic work, but it's you're clearly also trying to reach out and cross over to serious uh, lay readers. And I was wondering, what was that like as a process to write this book? What did it feel? very different from the other kinds of writing you did? Was that challenging? Um, actually, I loved writing it. It was it was a, a, in the same way that I found putting the ocean at the centre of the story uh, liberating. I found this kind of writing was much more of an emotional experience than I expected. I became absolutely passionate about the ocean and its history in a way that I didn't expect to. So I began the process by, you know, the usual kind of approach of reading sort of secondary materials and then delving into archives and reading a lot of primary sources and, and of course, drawing on my own experiences. And I think probably being uh, having the freedom to kind of really bring my own ideas into it, and I should say they formed as I was writing. They weren't necessarily already there. I kind of went on a personal journey too into this ocean and so I combined my own reflections on the experience of being in the Roaring Forties, for example, and then last year having ventured into the Antarctic region by ship and actually sailing across the Drake Passage, landing on a sub, some sub-Antarctic islands and experiencing it firsthand brought to the process of writing a very different and as I say, a very emotional kind of response to mm. what prior to that was probably more of an academic exercise. Mm. Um, and I think what has helped is that I've spent years working um, as a public historian. So I've spent a lot of time you know, undertaking oral histories with communities and finding out how people think about their past, how they remember things, how they relate to the natural world. And I 
suppose in a way I brought a lot of that to this book. I was really uh, writing with the ideas of, you know, what does this mean for us and our future? And I suppose by the end of it, I became absolutely passionate about bringing this region to the world because it just seems to be have been ignored or, or, or very much seen in a narrow way. It is a very complex history and really I've just touched the surface of it, literally. Well, Joy McCann, thank you so much for talking with me today. Oh, great pleasure. Thanks, Michael. That's it for today. The music for Time to Eat the Dogs was composed by Zabrat. If you'd like to recommend a guest or offer an opinion, please email me at time to eat the dogs. That's one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. And please rate the show and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It's really one of the best ways of reaching new listeners who might be interested in the show. See you next week. Bye.